In John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38, we read of these words. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your, your own nation, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were in this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? In John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38, we read of this second encounter between Jesus and Pilate. And in the discussion, Pilate asked Jesus a series of questions. Are you the king of the Jews? What have you done? He asked again, Jesus, are you a king? But it's that last question that is worth us taking note of this morning. Pilate asks, what is truth? What is truth? The famous philosopher and essayist Henry David Thoreau, or Thoreau has said, rather than love, rather than money, than fame, give me truth. If someone was to ask you, what is truth, what would you say? That's a deep philosophical question that we know as Christians from the get-go, what is truth? That God himself is truth. And the Bible itself is truth. But more specifically to our lesson and sermon this morning is, does it matter if something is true or not? Does it matter if something is true or not? And these questions have had massive implications on many churches in our time. Peter Lee, who is the Episcopal uh, Bishop of Virginia, has said, heresy is better than schism. Heresy is better than schism. He goes on to say, uh, he must, you must make a choice. If you were to make a choice between heresy and schism, between uh, sound or wrong doctrine, non-orthodox belief, then dividing the church, always choose heresy. Here what he says here, his reason. For a heretic, you were only guilty of wrong opinion. As a schismatic, you have torn and divided the body of church. So if you're a heretic, and if you choose heresy, then you're only, you're only guilty of a wrong opinion. But if you choose to stay within the truth and stand for the truth, then you're guilty of dividing the body of Christ.
Christ. Many believe that, or this quote from Lee really hits at the heartbeat uh, of so much of what's wrong with the church today. Many believe that church is something of, or truth is something of an opinion of what we believe, that doctrinally, doctrine shouldn't matter at all. People nowadays desire more from a church, uh, less doctrine, and more community. You see that now in the names that churches give themselves. Rather than First Presbyterian Church or uh, Faith Baptist Church, it's the way. It's fellowship community. People nowadays desire less exposition of Scripture and more practical living, less dogma, more experience. Teach me about my personal relationship with Jesus rather than a biblical relationship with Jesus. This type of belief has led people to say many things such as no creed but Christ. We don't need the ancient creeds of the, of the church, but what we need is Jesus Christ and him alone. No headquarters but heaven. Doctrine divides, mission unites. Friends, how do you feel about doctrine? It's the question that I have for you this morning. Do you believe that the truth of God's word is something that we should fight for, something that we should stand for, or for the sake of unity, something that we should sweep under the rug? How do you evaluate truth in your life? Is truth validated by what feels good to us? Or by maybe our personal experience? Or hopefully something a little bit more substantial? Friends, to help us answer those questions, I want us to turn once again to the letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. If you are able, then please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 2. And we will also be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord says this. Uh, Children, it is the last hour, and as many of you heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, That you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught 
uh, taught you, abide in him. Now, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 say this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. But this, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in the world is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You may be seated. To help us consider these verses this morning, I just have three points I would like for us to consider. The first point is false teachers. The second point is false doctrine the third point the truth that uh, the truth that encourages false teachers false doctrine and the truth that encourages or comforts let's consider the first point false teachers false teachers if you remember from last lord's day we learned from the apostle john that A true Christian is to evaluate themselves by two tests. There are two tests that John gives to us that we are to evaluate our Christian life in light of. And the first mark of a true Christian is whether or not they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you know that you are a Christian? It's by the love that you have for your fellow Christians the love that you have for the one sitting to the right of you and to the left of you. He said in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Though we are to believe right and sound doctrine. That sound doctrine is to lead us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. What John is saying is it makes no sense to be in the light and not love others who are in the light. The second test we found in verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone has love, has loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That just as much as we are to love our fellow Christians, we are to equally hate the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we are to hate the people of the world. But we are to hate this evil system that opposes everything connected to God. That's what we are to hate. We are to, as much as we can, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, refrain ourselves from the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. We are not to be associated with worldliness. If you remember, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's what worldliness is. It makes sin look normal. 
It makes righteousness look strange. I wonder what side are you on this morning? Do you look strange to the world or do you look normal to the world? Uh, One theologian has said, those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world. That's what peace with God means. It means to be conflict with the world. Not saying we are to hate everything in this world, but we are to hate everything that opposes God in this world. Read your newspaper. Turn to CNN. You will see all of the blasphemy that the world has and does. Ultimately, what John is telling us is we are to test whether we are of the faith by where our heart lies. John, last week, gave us a heart check, did he not? And now he presents to us a new test. That so far we've been, he's exhorted us to test that we are of the faith by looking at how we live practically. That we are to test if we are a Christian by looking at our footsteps. Tracing where have we been. How do we live. Now John wants us to test what we know theologically. He gave us a practical test. Now he wants to give us a theological test. And the first test we see is found in chapter 4, verse 1. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. It's clear that something has happened to these churches that John is writing to. And we know from chapter 1 that false teaching has crept inside the church. If you remember that there were these heretics, these Gnostics, who were teaching that the body was evil and the spirit is good. And the basic argument is this, that since God is spirit, that he can't take on that which is evil. That the eternal God cannot take on a body. They are denying the incarnation of the eternal Son. And in light of such teaching, John says in in chapter 4, verse 1, test the spirits. In light of what you hear, in light of people who are going out from you, test the spirits. We're also to test that ringtone. Where is that from? Is that a Christian song? Or <laughs> In 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul used this same term in directing his readers. He said, examine everything carefully to hold fast to that which is good. Here John is calling his readers to use their minds, use their heads, and to closely examine the theologies and doctrines of all of their teachers. Every single one that comes in their midst, examine what they are saying. Like coins being tested for genuineness or full weight. Like a restaurant tested for health inspection. John is exhorting these Christians to examine and to pay close attention to every single sentence, to every single word that comes from the teacher's mouth. Test the spirits. But how are we to examine these false spirits? John exhorts us to test the spirits, but how are we to test the spirits? Well, John tells us in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's the standard by which all doctrine is judged? John says it's the Word of God. It's the pattern of sound words that Paul tells young Timothy. 
In paragraph 10, chapter 1 of our Confession of Faith, it reads, The Supreme Judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence are to rest, can, no, can be no other than by the Word of God, by the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture was delivered, our faith is finally resolved. Not the opinions of men, not the ancient creeds and confessions, not our own experiences, but the standard by which we test the Spirit is God's Word. That is our standard. It's God's Word. The Word of God is our ultimate rule of authority. We are a confessional church. But my confession is subservient. It comes underneath. It's subordinate to the Word of God. And saints, this is so important for us to grasp as a church, is it not? For what drives so many Christians' interpretation of doctrine is what they think and what they feel. I don't like this doctrine because it doesn't feel right. I don't like this doctrine because I don't think that sounds right. Why do you think that there's so many bad teachers in the church today? Why do you think that there's so many people in this church today can get away with so much false doctrine and false truth? Because Christians are not rightly using the Word of God as their standard of faith and practice. Now, notice what I said here. I said rightly. Because everybody claims that they use the Word of God. Everyone thinks that, well, it's the Bible, it's here, right? But there's a difference between using the Word of God and rightly using the Word of God. They're not properly interpreting the Scriptures in such a way that's consistent with the entirety of the Bible. Friends, in many ways, there's so many bad teachers because it's, the congregation that's validating their false teaching. It's the congregation that validates, that says, okay. And you know how they say okay? By keep coming back every Sunday. That's how people validate false teaching. That's how people validate teaching in general now. It's by coming back each and every Sunday. I've met many Christians in my life who think that the final interpreter of doctrine and theology is themselves that they themselves is the final interpreter of what doctrine means, what the Bible says, what theology is as a whole. I met some people who use their experience as their standard. I've been saved longer than anyone else, or simply I've been reformed for such a long time. Saints, the way we are to test teaching is by how consistent it lines up with what God says in his word. And friends, this rule extends to other parts of our lives as well. When we think about same-sex marriage, what does the Bible say? When we think about alcohol, what does the Bible say? When we think about how we are to raise our kids, what does the Bible say? The Bible is to be our final interpreter of how we are to live. The Word of God is to be the lens through which we operate in this world. We are to see this world through a biblical lens. So John here is telling these Christians to test the spirits 
But we must ask, why is John telling these Christians to test the spirits? We see our answer in chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as if you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Here, John introduces to us three words that us Christians know quite well, do we not? He says that it is the last hour. You've been a Christian for some time. You've been in churches for some time. You know this word, last hour, last day. Which means that from the vantage point of redemptive history, there's only one thing left for God to do. And that is to send his son, Jesus Christ. The last days are not necessarily the very last day and Jesus Christ is going to come the next day. But from the ascension to the second coming, that we are living in the last days. Think about it. John says to these people that they are living in the last days. What about us now? As one theologian has said, we're probably living in the lesser days. He says it is the last hour. We are living in the very midst of our Lord's return. The end of the age is upon us. And how we know that such hour has come, because John says, because the Antichrists are here. Friends, how do we know that it is the last hour because the Antichrists are here? They're in our midst. Now, likewise, if you've been a Christian for some time, this is a buzzword, is it not? Antichrist. It's a scary word for many Christians. Antichrist. But this famous word is only used four times in the Bible. And all of them are used by one author, John. Now, when John speaks of this Antichrist figure, he's speaking of those who either oppose Christ, who rival Christ, or who replace Christ. Those who oppose Christ or those who replace Christ. Now, those who oppose Christ are those who teach a non-biblical view of Jesus Christ. For example, Joseph Smith the one who was the founder of Mormonism, Muhammad, the founder of Islam, Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventist. Those are the ones who oppose Christ. They are antichrists. But also, there are those who replace Christ, who replace Christ. And those are the ones who oppose Jesus Christ who have a non-biblical view of Jesus Christ, but they do so in a secretive way. The best example of this is the Pope, who I believe is the embodiment of the Antichrist. I don't believe that there will be a final Antichrist. I believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. If you want more on that, talk to me after. Talk to Pastor Antonio. Read your confession of faith. Um, but John says that these Antichrists that these false teachers, they're here. Imagine reading that. For the very first time, hearing that word, the Antichrists are here. Imagine the fear and terror that might have ran through these people's minds. John says these false teachers 
are here. And friends, when we survey the teachers who dominate the Christian landscape, we see a variety of antichrists and false teachers, do we not? You go to Walmart, go to Target, look at the Christian section of the bookstall. Who do you see? You go to, well, it's not there anymore, but you go to Lifeway. Who are they promoting? They're promoting, they're promoting the, the most dangerous false teachers in our day to day. Out in the open. Posters of them. All of their books. If you buy their book, it comes with a CD. It's all there. Let me give you a few. Stephen Furtick, pastor of Elevation Church, where it's reported that 25,000 people attend his service each Sunday. 25,000 people. Not just one single church, but he has a multi-site church. They're everywhere. He said in one sermon that in order for us to be rescued from under the condemnation of the law, God himself broke the law for love. In order for us to be released from under the law, Jesus Christ broke the law. Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church, where it was reported over 9,000 members attend service each Sunday, has said that Jesus had to be born again because he became sin for us. At the resurrection, Jesus Christ was, quote, born again like you and I. Kenneth Copeland says the same thing, another mega, if you want to use this word, celebrity preacher, that Jesus had to give up his righteousness, and hear this, accept the sin nature of Satan. Benny Hen, the same, says Jesus didn't take my sin. He became my sin. He became one with the nature of Satan. And lastly, Rick Warren, who over 20,000 people attend his church every week, has stated that Pope Francis... It's our Pope. He says Pope Francis, who I believe is the embodiment of the Antichrist, who people say is another Christ, who one theologian has said is sweet Jesus on earth. That's one, is our Pope. He also says that he's a perfect model of what every Christian should be like. Friends, what's the point of bringing these false teachers up? Because it's to show you that in these last days that we are living in, that we aren't to believe everything that we hear. Simple as that. That we aren't to believe every wind of doctrine. Just because this person has 20,000 members doesn't mean that they are preaching sound doctrine. Just because they are in the New York Times bestseller for your best life now, doesn't mean that they are accurately teaching how the Bible says that we are to have our best life now. Mind you, our best life is in the life that's to come, not now. Friends, just because one preacher is really popular doesn't mean that their message is sound. My exhortation to you is John's exhortation to his readers, test the spirits. Test every wind of doctrine, everything you hear. Be a Berean. Go back to the scriptures. Examine everything. Look at what others in our tradition have said concerning that doctrine. There are many Christians in this world that are being deceived. There are many Christians in this world that are being led astray and saints as your shepherd, as the one 
who is in charge over your soul, I do not want you to be led astray. That's the one thing I fear, is that one day you say, I'm leaving this church to go to a Mormon church. I'm leaving this church to go to a Roman Catholic church. Everything you hear from this pulpit, even me, I'm not exempt. Everything you hear must consistently line up with God's word. Friends, test the spirits. Let's consider the second point, and that is false doctrine. False doctrine. After John has warned us about these antichrists, we must ask, what were these antichrists teaching? What makes them so bad? What makes them an antichrist, a false Christ? What is their doctrine? He says in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Is the, not, is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He said in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's clear from these two texts that these antichrists were teaching three heresies concerning Jesus Christ. First, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. To deny Jesus as the Christ is to reject his office and title. Ultimately, to reject that Jesus is the Christ is to reject that Jesus is the Messiah. It's to reject that Jesus is the Savior of men. He is the one who Israel looked forward to. We read in Genesis chapter 3.15 that this one who will come from the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. We know that that one whom God is speaking of is Jesus Christ. And as we read the Old Testament, the Bible identifies many who were anointed. And that's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one. And that's what we read in the Old Testament, that there are many individuals who were anointed ones. Every prophet, priest, and king in Scripture, in some sense, can be called a Christ because they were anointed. But ultimately, these anointed prophet, priests, and king were shadows. They were prefigurements. They were types of this final prophet, priest, and king. This final anointed one who will do what all other Old Testament prophet, priest, and king could never do. In his one person, he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. As we come to the New Testament, what does John the baptizer say when he sees Jesus? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To deny Jesus as the Christ ultimately is to deny our only hope for mankind. What other Savior is there other than the God-man Jesus Christ? Secondly, these false teachers were denying the Incarnation. Denying the incarnation, simply put, to deny the incarnation is to deny that God became man. Is to deny that the eternal Son took on human flesh. And throughout church history, many have denied this central claim, whether it be the Docetists in the second century, who said that Jesus Christ was 
truly God, but he wasn't truly man. And when you looked at him, it was merely an illusion. Because them, like the, the Gnostics, believed that God, who was spirit, could not take on a body which is evil. So Jesus Christ was a phantom. Or those who are the Apollinarius in the 4th century, who said that Jesus didn't have a true and complete human nature. And what they mean by that is, Jesus Christ was simply a divine person, but did not have a human mind and a human soul. But a human body was merely the instrument of him doing divine things. Saying to deny that God truly became man is to reject a multitude of verses that speak of this central fact. Read John 1. Read Philippians 2. Read Galatians 4.4. Read Luke 1.35. God manifested in the flesh. Aside from the Trinity is the distinguishing mark of our religion. Without the incarnation, not only does the Bible make sense, but our whole salvation is brought into question. If God did not become man, then how are we saved? We needed a Savior who was truly God in order that we may have eternal life. And we needed also a Savior who was truly man that our nature that was wicked, our nature that was full of sin, may be purified. As Gregory of Nyssa has said, the debt was so great that while men alone owed it, only God alone could pay it. Jesus was simply, if Jesus was simply a man, he would be like us at an infinite distance from God. If Jesus was simply a man and, and was not divine, then he would need, be, need to be saved himself. And likewise, in the same way, if Jesus was only God, he would be at an infinite distance to us. What would it be as, Gregory of, as Cyril of Alexandria said, what would it be if, if Jesus Christ was simply God and did not take a human nature? What, is it, what does it benefit us? But if he came as man, we win in him. Because Jesus Christ is the God-man, he bridges the gap between infinite God and finite man in his own person. The Puritan Stephen Charnock has said, he had both the nature which had offended and he had that nature which was offended. A nature to please God and a nature to please us. Friends, the great weight of sin demands that only a divine and human Savior could give us everlasting peace with the Father. And to deny the incarnation, ultimately, saints, is to deny our greatest need. The third denial is the divinity of Jesus Christ. If you know church history well, you know that the debate over whether or not Jesus Christ is God is what's ultimately, or what's almost ultimately, destroyed the church. That you have this one named Arius from Alexandria who taught that Jesus Christ, since he is begotten from the Father, means that he is the Father's first and greatest creation. That Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, is not eternal like his Father, but he was created by his Father. We have men like Alexander of Alexandria. We have men like the great Athanasius who dissected Arius' argument and really shredded it to pieces. But ultimately, what, what, what Athanasius' argument to Arius is this, that if Jesus Christ is not truly God, then we, not, then we do not have a true and complete Savior. 
The problem with Arius is Christ is Arius is Christ cannot save. A Christ who is merely a human and not divine cannot save humanity. But also, too, it goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. That the Bible testifies to the divinity of Jesus Christ. And if one denies the central truth of Christianity, then Jesus says in John 8.24 that you will die in your sins. That if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you will die in your sins. That John says in verse 23 of our text that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In a nutshell, you can't believe in God the Father without believing in God the Son. Because a father implies a son, or at least a child. If the father is eternal, then the son is eternal. If the father is God, then the son is God. That is why we read in the Nicene Creed that Jesus Christ is consubstantial with the father. He's of one substance, of one nature with the father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And saints, the main point of this is simply this, that doctrine matters. In light of the incarnation and the denial of that, in light of them denying that the true divinity of the Son, in light of them denying that Jesus Christ was the, Jesus was the Christ, what we get from this, from these denials, is that doctrine and theology matters. It matters what we believe. And this is so unpopular in our church today, is it not? Because many believe that doctrine is only good for dividing Christians. That's the only thing doctrine is good for. It's good for separating Christians. That doctrine is only good for debates and arguments. What's the thing you hear all the time? I don't want to debate doctrine. I don't want to talk about doctrine. Doctrine doesn't matter, but what really matters is community and fellowship. Saints, we can have fellowship and community with a lot of people who we disagree with. But we can't have church with them. I love my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. But I can't do church with them. I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. But I can't do church with them. I love my Anglican and my Lutheran brothers. But I can't do church with them. Because what divides us is doctrine. But what unites us is doctrine. What unites me and you, brothers and sisters of the faith, is that you are my brothers and sister of the faith. That is what unites all of us in Christ. Doctrine is meant to divide, no doubt about that. And what we need so desperately in churches today are ministers who care more about truth than the size of their church. If ministers cared more about truth then there would be no 20,000, 9,000 member churches. Laymen and churchgoers who care more about sound doctrine and fellowship or friendship. Why do many people go to certain churches? Because my friends are there. Not because the word of God is rightly divided there. Not because they are properly administering the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because the music, the worship in music, and Pastor Antonio will talk about this later in this evening, right? The worship in music is, is kicking, it's booming, it's rocking. 
Friends, what we need so desperately is truth, sound doctrine, because that is what unites the people of the church. Martin Luther said, doctrine is heaven. St. Clair Ferguson made this wonderful insight recently. He said, the early church, and hear this, the early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as it feared false teaching. Think about that. The early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as it feared false teaching. In other words, the early church cared more about getting the Bible right than their own lives. Friends, think about your own life. Can you amen the early church? Do you care more about sound biblical doctrine and getting your theology right than you do your own life? Saints, it matters what we believe because gossip is not what kills the church. Lack of member attendance is not what kills the church. It's ultimately false teaching. False teaching is what kills the church. If a church doesn't uh, care about a pure and true doctrine, then a church might grow numerically, but they will die spiritually. Friends, truth matters. And in the final analysis, what's going to matter most is that question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do you say I am? Yes, get the doctrine of the Trinity right. Yes, get the doctrine of worship right. The doctrine of the church right. Get as much as you can right, but the top shelf doctrine is you better get Jesus Christ right. You better get that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. That he is the only Savior of men. Love God's word. Be a truth seeker. Because ultimately, what we believe will show itself in how we live. Let's consider the last point, and that is the truth that comforts or the truth that encourages. After John has warned his believers of false teachers and false doctrine, that they are to watch out for these wolves in sheep clothing, he now gives them some final comfort. Verse 20 and 21 say this, But you have been anointed by the Holy One of chapter 2, by the way. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, uh, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Saints, essentially what John is saying is that true believers know truth. That true believers know truth. And they know truth because they have been anointed by the Holy One. They know truth because they have been anointed by the Holy One. It is Jesus Christ who with the Father sends His Spirit to indwell true believers is the Holy Spirit that anoints every true believer. And don't believe when false teachers say, I need a fresh anointing. Or I need anointing that overflows or things like that. Or I'm going to anoint you with this, this canoia oil. That's not, that's not how you are anointed. You are anointed by faith in Christ alone and by the Holy Spirit indwelling you. 
If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, you're anointed. You're just as anointed. No, you're a more anointed than Benny Hen, than T.D. Jakes, than Joel Osteen, than Creflo Dollar, than all of these men. How can I say that? Because you know truth. That is why. And it's only in light of the Holy Spirit that we see the light of the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates and helps us decipher truth from error. When we read our Bibles, before we read our Bibles, often you pray that the Holy Spirit will help, on, help turn on every single light in your head to help illuminate every single false assumption and doctrine that you have conceived in your own minds. That is why John says in verse 27, 26 and 27 of verse chapter 2, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And hear what he says here. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, saints, many have read this verse and taken it straight out of context and believe that John is teaching that since true believers have the Holy Spirit, that they don't need to have any teachers in general. Because we have the Holy Spirit, why do we need teachers? Why do we need people teaching us our Bible? Why can't we just believe the Bible and that's it? Why do we need people to expound the Scriptures and teach us the Scriptures? But friends, we can't interpret verse 27 apart from verse 26. Remember, uh, John says that he's writing these things about those who are trying to deceive you. And these deceivers are who John has in mind in verse 27. His point is that they have what they already need. These false deceivers were teaching and proclaiming that they had new insight to theology that they had a fresh teaching from God, that they had secret knowledge. What John is saying is you don't need new teaching. You have the scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit. We don't need anyone teaching us or giving us new revelation. For in these last days, God has spoken to his church through his son. Saints, I am not a new truth teller. I am not saying anything that's new. In fact, there's nothing in me that's original at all. Gospel teachers are not truth or new truth dispensers, but rather gospel teachers, true gospel teachers, are dispensers of very old truth. And John's point is this, saints, that all believers are given the Holy Spirit, and when the gospel is proclaimed by teachers, the Spirit within them affirms what's being taught. That is why you amen what I'm saying. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. It's the Holy Spirit that's confirming the truth that I am speaking. Hopefully I'm speaking the truth. Believer, you have the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we neglect that. That we have the one who hovered over the waters in that first day of creation. That we have that one indwelling with us. And we know from the doctrine of the Trinity that if you have the Spirit, you have the Son. And if you have the Son, you have the Father. What does that mean? You have the Godhead 
dwelling within you. Know the truth. Know the gospel. John's charge to his readers in verse 24 and 25 is my charge to you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Friends, that is my charge to you. Endure in God's truth, because truth endures forever. And the truth that you believe from the beginning, the very truth that you believe from the very moment of your Christian beginning, is that same truth that is going to carry you to the very end. Saints, what is that truth? What is that truth that we have believed from the beginning? Well, it's that same truth. It's that old truth that Martin Luther proclaimed in Wittenberg. It's that same truth that John Calvin preached in Geneva. It's that same truth that John Owen meditated of. It's that same truth that we preach to you every Sunday. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the truth that will never die. That is the truth that has stood the test of time. That is the truth that we are still fighting to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church over. That is the truth, saints, that you are to shed your life and blood over. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works, in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. Friends, if you believe that sweet gospel news, if you believe that central truth, what does God's promise to you? He promises you eternal life. Eternity is a long time. A very long time. And the sad reality is that there are so many Christians who believe this church. There are so many Christians in here right now that know this truth but simply do not want to affirm it. They know this truth but they can't live by this truth. How sad is it to be awakened to be shown this holiday at the sea. But you still are comfortable making mud pies in the slums. Saints, the, 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 the reality of this sweet gospel truth is that it is what carries us to our celestial city. It's what carries us to our eternal home. It's, it's what's going to carry us to the not yet, that consummation of all things, that new heaven and new earth. My charge to you this morning is know this truth and abide in this truth. That's really the message of this sermon, is that if you are a believer in Christ, abide in the truth. Test the spirits. Don't believe the newest and greatest teachings that are in the air. Use sound doctrine. Spirit-led discernment. And care about truth. Like, honestly care about truth. You might say, well, I don't want to care about truth too much because I don't want to offend people. But friends, for the sake of truth, you must risk being offensive. Truth is going to be offensive. The gospel is offensive. The one practical charge I have for you this morning 
is that although Antichrist and false teachers are known for what they confess, we can be Antichrist by how we live. Although Antichrist and false teachers, and hear me now, are known by what they teach, we can be false teachers and Antichrist by how we live. It is possible, and hear this, saints, and this is scary, it is possible to confess and profess the correct Christ and practically live like a demon. You know there are many Christians who don't know that they are Christians? And there are many Christians who know that they are not Christians. Think about that. You can confess, you can believe all of this orthodox teaching and still go to hell because you don't walk and live it practically. Brothers and sisters, what you know must be seen in how you live. What you know must be seen in how you live. You are a fool. If you confess Christ, and you do not live like Christ. Remember what John says in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You are a liar and you do not know Christ if you do not walk in the ways that Christ walked. And I would add, if we say we know the truth and do not walk in the truth, then the truth is not in us. Me and Pastor Antonio talked about this the other day, that at times we can overemphasize salvation by grace alone. That it's all by grace alone and you're saved, but that's how we are saved. Now, how are we to live is the question. How are we to live in light of this great grace that has been given to us? We're to live like Christians. Simple as that. We take our orders from the Bible and the Bible alone. That yes, we enter the Christian life by grace And we stay in the Christian life by grace. But friends, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a bad thing to be holy. And it's not a bad thing to seek holiness. It's not a bad thing to obey God's law. Because that is our roadmap to holy living. The truth we confess is the truth that we are to abide in. In closing, saints, in light of living in a world where there is much false teaching and false antichrist. I mean, think about where we are now. Surrounding us, there's a Catholic church on the, down the street. There's a big mega church that preaches false doctrine down the street. Up the road, there's an, a, a, a more false teaching uh, that, that has many members and, and people who attend. How are, how are we to live and what comfort do we have? Well, as your shepherd, as the one who loves and cares for your soul, my encouragement I leave you with is the same words that John left his readers. Verse 6, verse 4 of 6 of chapter 4 say this, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, them being the false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he is in the world. The God who dwells within you is greater than than the God of this age, Satan. 
They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Saints, pay no mind to these false teachers. There's better people you can read. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Because the spirit of truth indwells within us. Speak the truth, saints, and know the truth and live by the truth. Let's pray.